0: American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to Save Big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I think I recognize that man. Which one? The Colonel. That's Lenaris home. Lenaris.
1: From the Ornathia Resistance Cell
0: met him at a reception in the capital about a year ago he's good
1: welcome everyone to another episode of the positively trek book club with your hosts dan gunther and bruce gibson bruce how are you doing today
2: I'm doing well. I read a book today that I finished and I want to talk about it.
1: Excellent. Well, we're here to do just that. So yeah, uh, we're continuing our look at the the final books that we have to cover in the Lost Era. And this one is the second book of the Terok Nor trilogy. And this one's called Night of the Wolves. This is the middle book of the trilogy covering the years of the Bajoran occupation the Cardassian the occupation of Bajor, I should say. And uh, yeah, we're we're going to jump right into that. Of course, as you know from our pr- most recent episodes, the first part of this episode will be spoiler free. We'll talk about our thoughts of the book and and if we recommend it or not. And then after a brief break, we'll go into spoilers and really dig down deep into this book. So Bruce, you were saying before we started recording, you finished reading this book just today.
2: Yes, I did. I had two chapters left, and I read them today. And so I didn't get a chance to really sit there and think about it or skim through some parts like I usually do sometimes. But, yeah, I found this book This book wasn't quite what I was expecting. I don't really know Mm. what I was expecting. I think I was expecting something that takes place immediately after the last book and involved more of those characters. So I would say I was pleasantly surprised by this book.
1: Right. Interesting. Okay. We'll have to get into that for sure. Uh, I've read this book, of course, before. I read it years ago. Uh, And recently read it again and and just kind of read the last hundred pages or so today as well. It was kind of down to the wire on it, but got it finished and and wrote some of my thoughts down in the notes here. And uh, yeah, I enjoy this book. I really liked it the first time around. It was fun to kind of revisit it and take another look at it here. We've got a lot of characters that are from the television show that we see what they're up to during the occupation and a lot of characters that are brand new creations for this novel and for this trilogy as well. So uh, one thing I wanted to do is give you recommended viewing to go along with this book because a lot of books use ideas from episodes and that sort of thing. So I think there's a, there's a set of episodes that are great viewing for this novel and these are all deep space nine episodes Uh, The first one I want to bring up is Duet from the first season of Deep Space Nine, probably the best DS9 episode of season one. That's the one where the Cardassian, who seems to be Gul'dar Heel, comes to Deep Space Nine and is interrogated by Kira, and it's kind of a a two-person play back and forth between the two of them for most of the episode. And that one definitely applies to what happens in this novel thoughts on that episode Bruce does do your thoughts align with mine that it's one of the best episodes of early DS9
2: yeah I would say so for sure because you know even though I haven't gotten through a whole rewatch since the first time the series was on and I watched it as it came out I have watched season
1: one fairly recently and yeah, I would agree with that. Right on. Well, from season two, there's two episodes in season two that I think are definitely recommended viewing for this book. The first is the alternate, which introduces us to the character of Dr. Mora Pohl, who is the Bajoran scientist who studied Odo under the Cardassians and profit and loss, which is kind of deep space nine's take on Casablanca with Quark in the Humphrey Bogart role And Professor Natima Lang, a Cardassian, who actually features quite a bit in this novel as well. So two early episodes that I I think Profit and Loss is one of my favorite episodes in season two. The Alternate, maybe not quite as good an episode, but definitely introduces you to that character.
2: Yeah. And then uh, the next episode is Shakar, which is not my favorite
1: episode. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, this one... (laughs) I'm not a big fan of his. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. This episode, I I put on this list uh, probably not for the the reasons that people might think. We do see a bit of Shakar and the Shakar resistance cell in this novel, but the main reason I picked this episode is because it introduces us to a character named Lenaris Holum, who has a big part in the novel as well. And his part in that episode isn't huge But I think if you watch that episode, you'll be pleasantly surprised about how much of what happens to Lyneris in this novel is taken from just a few lines in that episode. I I always love that. I always think that's fun.
2: Yeah, this is an episode I definitely want to watch now that I've read the novel. I mean, I've seen it before, but it's been a while. But it's one of those things where, you know, I have a habit of reading the novels and then I want to go back and watch these episodes because I know more about these characters. I don't want to see how it is what it's like watching the episode with this new information in my head.
1: So all of these episodes I've mentioned take place in the first three seasons of DS nine. And there's one outlier on the list, and that is the episode wrongs darker than death or night, which comes from season six of deep space nine. And this episode details Dukat's relationship with Kira Maru, who is Kira Norris's mother. And we get a lot of that backstory in that episode, which plays heavily in this novel as well. So, uh, you know, if you haven't read the novel yet and you're just listening to the spoiler free part, uh, maybe check out those five episodes as well, or, or one or two of them if you want a little bit of supplemental, uh, viewing for your reading experience here.
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting though, that you're saying that because it makes me think of that as I'm reading this novel, I didn't feel like there was any big surprises. It was just more the things we've known about just playing out
1: and actually seeing it. There's definitely a bit of that. It, it's, it's a prequel. It's stuff we've seen before. There are a couple connections that are made that take place in the novel that I think are a little bit of a nice kind of surprise that kind of tie things together. But like you say, nothing really groundbreaking for sure. Yeah, story-wise, Exactly. Well, uh, I'm just going to give my uh, my recommendation. I like the, the first novel in this trilogy. I think this is a great novel for fans of Deep Space Nine who want a little bit of backstory and kind of building that world that was taking place before the series. Uh, I would definitely recommend this novel for DS9 fans and fans of Star Trek in general. So
2: the way I feel about this novel is that, you know, the first novel... They they feel very different to me because the first novel there weren't as many familiar or well known characters for me while I was reading it. Of course, it takes place further back in time, so it's going to have less more current connection to Deep Space Nine than this novel would. And so we're being introduced to some of our major characters that we've seen in DS Nine. So these were more characters I was familiar with, but I would say at the same time it. A lot of it felt a little too familiar. Like I said before, I knew how these storylines were pretty much going to play out, but in the first novel that we read, it was a little more unique to me. So mm-hmm. it's not that I like one better than the other necessarily. They just feel different. I would definitely recommend this to a deep space nine fan. I would say if somebody doesn't want to get too in the weeds of how all of this began, and you just want to find out more about the origins of some of the characters, then you could start with this and you don't necessarily have to read the first book. But if you're interested in the occupation and how it started up, I would definitely then read book one and then this one.
1: Well, we'll take a brief break here and come back with our spoiler filled review of Tarok Noor book two, Night of the Wolves.
2: Thank you to you, our listeners, for supporting Positively Track, and to especially our patrons on Patreon. If you would like to contribute to Positively Track and be a patron on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash Track. You'll get perks like early access to episodes and bonus content. And for those who are in the higher levels, you get shout-outs and associate producer credits and much more. And speaking of shout-outs, let's give a shout-out to Carl Morris, Joyce Marin, Jim Stoffel, Dave Garcia, Rick Young, Paul D. Kinnear, and John Blaber. Thank you all for your support. Now let's go back
1: to the show. So Night of the Wolves, like I said, this is the middle story of the trilogy, and I definitely noticed, to start out with, a big change in the storytelling style between the first book and this one. Of course, the first book was written by James Swallow. This one, Book two and book three were written by S.D. Perry and Britta Dennison. So there's going to be some differences in storytelling just from the different styles of the authors. But overall, I noticed one big difference between this and the previous book. And you kind of touched on it a little bit before that there's, you know, some changes. We're getting closer to the more, quote unquote, modern era of Deep Space Nine that we see in the series. But even more basic than that for me day of the vipers the first book there seemed to be this very clear narrative progression of this story that there was kind of one single story being told and we kind of branched off and did different side quests side stories i guess throughout but there was kind of this main through line whereas in this novel it feels more like a snapshot of events during this period. Like we'll jump over here with this group for a while and we'll jump over here. And it kind of goes from one story to the next, giving the reader an overall look at the occupation. Did you find that you enjoyed that kind of change in the way the story was told or uh, did you prefer book ones? Gosh, that's
2: a really good question. It didn't bother me that it was going between the different storylines. I mean, typically There's a certain rhythm in a novel where maybe let's say there's three or four storylines and you hit storyline one, then two, three, four, and you come back one, two, three, four. This one seemed to be like one, two, three, two, three, one, but like, it just seemed to go wherever it wanted to go. It didn't mess it up necessarily for me. I was just at times surprised that we were going back to a certain storyline after just reading that previously to the last one or whatever and then there were sto- certain storylines like Apaka that just kind of dwindled off like we had you know it ended earlier and then new storylines started afterwards so i don't know if i prefer one or the other necessarily i i guess in most cases i would say the style of book 1 is what i would usually prefer but because this seemed more of like a historical document of these different events with all the different characters. I'm expecting that. And I don't know, cause I haven't read book three. I'm expecting this is kind of showing all the different pieces and then they kind of all
1: add up together in book three. Yeah. And I mean, I not wanting to really spoil book three, but I, I think it's not too much of a spoiler to say that book one kind of stands on its own a little bit. And book two and three are kind of almost like a part one and two of these stories that we're getting now if that makes sense. I
2: kind of guess that because it's the same authors, right?
1: Yeah, and and like you said, some of the stories just seem to kind of stop and then you know the again, not necessarily spoiling, like a lot of those will be picked up again in book 3 because they're they're ongoing things that are going to continue. But uh, yeah, it's definitely noticeable in here that there's more of a of a to be continued than there was from book one, if that makes sense.
2: Yes, because I was on the last chapter and as I was getting towards the end, I thought, is it going to say to be continued? Because there's something here in the epilogue that is, hasn't been resolved. And I've been kind of wondering about it. And sure enough, it says to be continued in book three.
1: Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned the epilogue because, uh, again, I read these a few years ago. And I was like, I didn't really remember this epilogue here and and all of this. So it's interesting what's going to be picked up in book three. So I'm, I'm eager to pick that one up and, and get going on that too. So, Yeah, and uh, we'll be doing that soon, which is pretty exciting. For sure. Well, we'll stick with this one for now. Like I said, we've got a lot of characters in here that we see from the series. And uh, a lot of, you know, small names, but also big names, of course, uh, big ones including we see Kieran Reese and Ro Laren and uh, even a brief glimpse at she would become Kai Winn at one point. And uh, Opaka plays a big role in this novel. She's a Vedic at this time and, and has some issues with the way the church is going. And the church, of course, the Church of Bajor, the, the prophets being led by Gar Osun, who we know from the last novel is not who he appears to be. So it's funny. There are some threads picked up from the last novel that continue on through, but for the most part, the characters we're seeing are different from the ones in that novel. Although we do get a brief return of Dara Mace, which I actually did not remember when I was rereading this. I was like, Oh, I forgot that he comes back. That was really cool. Yeah.
2: It was nice to see him because he was one of my favorite characters in the last novel. And so we got a little bit of him here or there in this one. There are certain storylines in here that after I read this, I thought back on it. Like you said, Apaka and and of course like Odo and such are in here, but I would almost say that I'd want to see more of those stories played out maybe in their own novels, you know, like more of an Odo origin novel and a Apaka origin novel. Like I, I wanted, and maybe I'll fill it's not that it wasn't fulfilled, but I just felt like, and maybe I'll feel different even ap- after book three, but I just felt like those characters themselves really could deserve a whole story
1: novel themselves. Mm-hmm. I feel like you you've hit on something that echoes how I feel a little bit about this in that there's a lot going on in these books. And it's easy for some stories to kind of get lost in the shuffle, it feels like, and like, for for me, just putting together the notes for this episode, I forgot to put anything down about Lanaris Holum and his whole part of the book, which is a major part of the book, mostly in the first two-thirds of it. He's kind of dropped a little, drops off a little bit towards the end. But also I forgot to put in stuff about Opaka and her story with uh, with what's going on, which is another major part of the book. So, yeah, it feels like... These stories could deserve more of a, a focus in their own book, maybe, or something like that. And in this kind of big, huge, expansive history of the occupation, there's just so much going on that they kind of get a little lost in the shuffle.
2: Yeah, because Opaka, and I keep bringing up Opaka for some reason, even though she's not a big part of this book, but like you said, like in the first half of it or so, she's a fairly prominent character. And Linares is also, like you said, in the first two thirds. And then it's like we get Rolaren in the last half or third and same with Kira. It just seemed like when you're starting the book, you almost assume that when we're starting off with certain characters, they're going to play out through the end of the book. But then they start to drop off and others start to appear in their own storylines. But it kind of works, too, because... The years shift. Mm -hmm. So as the years shift, maybe one story isn't followed up on because we're moving to another year and a new start story is starting up.
1: Yeah. And adding to that, of course, with the years going by, you know, we see like maybe a little kid Kira in a something early on. And then as the years go by, she's coming into her own and growing into an adult. And then we see her, taking on the her role in the Resistance, for example. So, yeah, it kind of makes sense that because the story is so, it, it spans so many years, you know, it kind of has to keep moving on, which, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing, especially when you take this in combination with the next book and you we get to see the end of the story eventually. But for right now, just where it leaves off, it can have a bit of a disjointed feeling. Yeah,
2: and I like how Ro Laren is 14 and Kira's younger, and then years mm-hmm. we jump ahead to the next set of years, and then we get Kira at 14. You mm-hmm. know? Which is like when people become adults.
1: Yeah a, yeah. a very important year in in the Bajoran tradition. Well we've brought up Opaka a bit, so let's let's I'm I'm gonna jump around in the order that I have the notes in a little bit, but let's talk about her part in the story here because uh, we have the Bajoran society that follows the dejaras, the caste system, right? If you're born into a particular caste, you do the job of that caste. So if you're a family that's artists, you're expected to continue to be artists and pilots and uh, whatever else there is out there, engineers, that kind of thing. But with the Cardassian occupation, a lot of people are feeling like that tradition ha- no longer has a place. That Bajor requires their people to do what needs to be done regardless of what dejara they're in. And the Bajoran faith, which is kind of, uh, it's its led by this Kai, but it's influenced by gar Osen, who isn't really Gar-Osun. He's an obsidian order agent. They're trying to maintain the status quo, right? The Dajaras, because it's keeping Bajor segregated and not uniting. Meanwhile, Vedic Opaka, who we will see become Kai Opaka in, in Deep Space Nine in the pilot episode, she starts to believe that the Dajaras don't have a place in modern Bajor and that people need to unite and not necessarily fight the Cardassians because as a religious person, she's not a believer in violence, but rise up and be unified against the Cardassian presence. So uh, she finds herself kind of on the opposite side of, of the Bajoran faith and Basically gets excommunicated at one point or, or not quite excommunicated from the church, but she has her title revoked. And she kind of goes and starts preaching to the masses this message of leaving the dejaras behind, even though it's against what the, the prevailing faith believes. What did you think of Opaka's story here?
2: I enjoyed it because that she is going with what she believes and not what the church for the most part, tells her this is a very turbulent time of discovery for the Bajorans of where they fit in, what works and what doesn't. And so their society starts to shift and she starts to realize that the way things are today doesn't, the old ways don't work and order to unite and be on a united front against the Cardassians, this caste system needs to go out the window. And even though the church is saying, no, you gotta keep it, she's willing to make her stand. And I really love the scenes that involve her son Vassal in that because he's encouraging her and he's he's on board with it. And I love that they live in this, you know, little house, you know, that has a history with the church and she doesn't want to lose the house, but then she's kicked out and she's willing to move on. And get her messaging out there. So it was interesting to see someone who we know, who we know becomes a prominent leader later being removed from that leadership, but taking her own personal leadership to lead the people. So I really enjoyed that story.
1: Yeah, me too. I really loved the conviction of her faith, like how she goes to the Kai with these concerns or goes to Gar Osun with these concerns and is basically told like you can't preach this stuff or you're going to be out. And I feel like a lesser person would have been like, well, okay, I guess I better keep my mouth shut and toe the company line, but it's not even a question for her. She's like, "Oh, okay. Well, I guess I guess I have to go out on my own then." Like it doesn't she doesn't even entertain the possibility of going against her own convictions. Like she doesn't even think about, well, I have to compromise my beliefs then. No, she's like, okay, well, then I guess I have to leave. I love that. That's just the strength of of her convictions and her faith there. And what adds to it is that the Kai who was against
2: it comes around to agree with her.
1: Mm -hmm. You know,
2: so agreeing and starting to understand and coming to that way of saying, hey, you know what? I think she was right all along. That's great to see too, because you can see that she held to her beliefs. She was right. And then it's acknowledged that she was right. Now, of course that doesn't play out well
1: for the Kai, but yeah. you know,
2: cause of Gar Oson, but uh, I, I really like this story.
1: Yeah. The, the Kai coming around to that, like you said, and Gar Oson, I just, that's another one of those scenes where, you know, he's in such uh danger <laughs> and you just wish you could reach into the page and be like dude turn around you need to know what's coming and uh yeah so Gar Osen is trying to convince the Kai no you 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 can't go against this and Kai's like no i i i'm come around to the way Opaka is thinking and and i'm going to announce publicly that Bejor should renounce the Dejaras and it's like you may leave Gar and was like okay and then of course Gar just up and strangles the Kai. And oh man, that was brutal.
2: It was. Well, oh, who's the Kai now? I don't remember. Was that identified? I think
1: they hadn't chosen the Kai. I don't. Well, actually, it's kind of Opaka is kind of named the Kai towards the end, but not like officially. It's basically like, you know, everyone's going to follow her. So she's now the Kai. Yeah. That was interesting.
2: Yeah. That wasn't really
1: clarified if that was official or not well i
2: guess i assume it is and well i'm sure we'll hear more about that in the next book
1: yeah for sure well there's a lot of turmoil happening with the bajoran faith just generally with ducat's new edicts that the bajoran religious officials can't counsel to the workers and anymore and they have to register as workers themselves and that kind of stuff so it feels like the bajoran faith is kind of going underground so I can't imagine there'll be like an official election for the Kai this time around. It'd just be like the faithful people all say, yeah, it's her and they follow her. So, yeah, it's kind of what it felt like.
2: You know, when we're talking through the storyline and I'm just looking through the notes at the others, it dawned on me that this novel could have also worked as a set of short stories. Instead Mm -hmm. of having them all play out one after the other scene to scene back and forth, you could take all those different segments of the storylines and put them together and make short stories.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And it almost feels like it is kind of a set of short stories set in the occupation here. So, I mean, it's all together in that it all happens in the occupation, but a lot of these stories don't necessarily impact the other stories directly in a lot of ways. They're kind of all set in the same environment and the same set of circumstances are producing them, but they're all very different experiences. Yeah. No,
2: but there are times where some of them, there are certain circumstances where they do kind of play off of each other every once in a while. So it makes better sense to play it out this way.
1: Absolutely. Well, speaking of stories that kind of play off each other and intersect a bit, we also have these two young Cardassian students who are uh, studying at a Cardassian university and both become kind of interested in Bajor. And one of them is wanting to learn about Bajoran soil. So she uh, discovers there's this artifact that has some Bajoran dirt on it to get, and gets a sample. And it turns out, of course, to be one of the orbs that was captured by the Obsidian Order in the last novel. And she's exposed to this orb and starts having dreams and is compelled to look at the orb again. And she has this mysterious figure come to her in a dream and, and this orb experience, this vision, and learns that she is the next, like, guide for the Cardassian Aurelian religion that we saw kind of meet its end in the last novel, but there's remnants basically of it, and she's going to, she's supposed to lead this resurgence of it. And one of the things she sees in one of these experiences is Vedic Gar. Strangling the Kai. And of course, she realizes in this vision that he's not a Bajor and he's actually a Cardassian. And she sees all of this play out in real life and realizes that these are more than just dreams, that these experiences are real. And uh, she changes her name to Astrea. I'm not sure if that's the right pronunciation. And this all kind of interestingly links into A Stitch in Time, the Garrick novel written by Andrew Robinson that talks about the Aurelian religion and all that sort of stuff. So what did you think of this whole aspect of the story here? This was very
2: intriguing to me. I would say that I started to get probably more invested in this story than some of the others. Hmm. And not that I wasn't invested in all of them, but this one really, this one really perked my interest. You know, I... I just found it fascinating that this, this is a student that is Cardassian and she's having this experience with an orb. And I wanted to see how this plays out for someone like her and how this may change her view of the Bajorans and the occupation and everything's going on. And then it's this mystic thing that's going on and the bit of a little mystery to it. And, you know, this is the way You know, for her. (laughs) And and this is how the book ends. I mean, we don't really get the conclusion to this. This goes into the epilogue. So actually, as the last few chapters were playing out, I forgot about the storyline. It wasn't really touched on until we get to the epilogue. I was like, oh yeah, I want to know what's going to happen with this. So Mm -hmm. this was just very
1: intriguing to me. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting characters and and her kind of journey is really fascinating the kind of realization of a different path for Cardassia and for Cardassians and one of the things that both she and the Aurelian priest from the book the first book one of the things they they both experience is this vision of Cardassia in ruins and destroyed. And we know, of course, that that comes from the, the series finale of Deep Space Nine when the Dominion levels a lot of Cardassia, right? So they see that these events here, the Bajoran occupation and all of this will eventually lead to that. And it, it's sad that we know they won't be able to necessarily divert divert Cardassia off of that course. But we know from novels that follow the end of the deep space nine finale, that that future can be changed into a new brighter one for Cardassia eventually. But it's, it's neat how it's all linking to everything. Even the post finale uh, novels that come after and stuff.
2: It was interesting to me also that she runs into this, this officer, this Cardassian, and she thinks Like, oh, she's going to get in trouble, and it's this guy, Sakat, and he takes her back to his camp or whatever it is, and it just, I don't know, that whole thing was, you know, because he recognized when she said the name, Mm -hmm. he realized, oh, we've been waiting for you. This is the way. Yeah, I keep, goodness, I'm going to keep saying that, (laughs) but... (laughs) you know, and takes her back to his people and all this. And then she's like, oh my gosh, am I like the spiritual leader now? Am I this, this person that they've been waiting to guide them and all these things. I don't know. I just found that interesting.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of mystery there. And, and I found that really fascinating as well. This kind of secret underground Aurelian way worshipers or something. And, the kind of link that that might have to the Bajoran religion somehow. It's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that more explored in the third book as well, because like a lot of the stories here, it just kind of ends, and then there's obviously more to come. Well, we've mentioned him already, but uh, he's a significant part of this book. The Bajoran resistance member Lanaris Holum and his experience with the Ornathia Resistance cell. And I I alluded to this in the first part of the episode when I talked about the episode Shakar. And it's actually just a really small part of the episode Shakar when Kira and Shakar and all of them are up in the hills running from the the provisional government soldiers. The soldiers are led by Lanaris Holum. And they're looking at him through the binoculars and they're like, oh, that's Linaris Holum. He was in the Ornathia resistance cell. He led the first successful off-world raid, the raid on Pollock Five. Yeah, oh yeah, I remember that. He's a resistance hero. And that's it. Like, that's basically what this whole experience in this novel is built out of, is just those few lines in that episode. And I love how they take that and expand on the story here. And we've got him as... Having been a member of a resistance cell, but the, that ended badly, so he left. And then he gets recruited by this Ornathia group because they have this warp ship they want to fix up and use in campaigns, and he might have connections with his old cell and all of this. And that whole story I found really interesting, just with the the whole culture of the Bajoran resistance and and how. They're moving away from the traditions and that kind of thing and all becoming fighters, regardless of what walk of life they came from and stuff. And then his whole romance with this woman named Taro, who's engaged to this other guy, and that kind of crosses over into a different story that we'll get to later later. Uh, I, I found that all really fascinating. I was really invested in this character, kind of in the same way I was invested in Dara Mace in the first book. He kind of fills that role a bit in this novel, I found. That's a good call. I agree.
2: Yeah, he does kind of feel like he's that type of character for this book, because at first he's resistant to join them. And like you said, he's done this kind of thing before. And so he kind of goes along with it. And because they're, he says, yeah, he can help them find this person they're looking for and all that. And it just all plays out. He meets the one guy's sister, and oh, wow, she's quite attractive and kind of like her or whatever. But oh, she's engaged to the Sifa guy. And, you know, it, it just. It was nice just to kind of see a group of resistant fighters all getting together, working together. What's their mission going to be? you see them planning things out? Oh, maybe if we do it this way, oh, no, that's not going to work. Oh, we'll be caught if we go up in the ship and we do that. And so that was almost like showing you the day-to-day life of a resistance cell that's trying to figure out what's the na- next plan of action and how do we do this without any Cardassians finding out what we're trying to do and leading us to our camp and so on and so forth. And then Terrell's brother is at lack or whatever. He gets captured and in prison and they have to go save him. And you think that, oh, maybe, you know, they'll get through and save him, but they fail at that, you know, it's, and and her brother actually gets executed as a result of, of that going on along with the other prisoners. So yeah, I found the whole storyline to be very informative of what a cell like this would be like during this time.
1: Yeah, that whole story I found really fascinating and and specifically that raid as well on this off-world prison camp on Pollock 5 to rescue her brother, wh- who has already been executed by this point. They just don't realize it. They they have that mission there and they come back and they feel like they failed, right? They The prisoners weren't there. They were taken by surprise quickly and, and had to retreat. And they feel like this is a big, huge failure. And I remember reading that and thinking, it's funny that it was held in such reverence in the episode when they talk about the first successful off-world raid. And I was like, oh, that's weird. But then you see, like, yeah, they they didn't re- do what they set out to do, but they blew the crap out of that camp. And it was it was a huge operation, like, to get this ship Working And to fly off somewhere in a different star system and make an attack there like that really was a huge logistical and tactical win for the Bajoran resistance that was able to kind of show the rest of the resistance that they were capable of something like that. And it probably inspired so many people to pick up arms and fight against the Cardassians that, of course, it would be regarded as a, as a success. So I, I loved that whole story. And then the the whole kind of propaganda angle of it that they were able to use afterwards. It was just so much fun. And and it felt very realistic that like, yeah, that's exactly how that would play out. You know, you feel like this was a disaster, but really look at what you accomplished. That was huge. Yeah. No, I, it was good. I This to me felt
2: more like it was the main storyline of the book. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think maybe it was the one that played out the longest.
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense for sure. Yeah, it definitely uh, has a through line. And we, and we see Linaris Holum at different stages throughout the years that it covers. We kind of follow him the longest.
2: Yeah, yeah. So he almost felt like he was the major character. But like you said earlier, it kind of concludes itself two thirds of the way in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? so it's kind of weird, but yeah, I, I it I was satisfied though with with that storyline.
1: Absolutely. Well, we talked about these different storylines kind of crisscrossing and and involving other parts of the storyline. Now, this fiance of Terrell is named Sifa, like you mentioned, and when Terrell and Linaris and all of them decide that they're going to go to Polok Five and try to rescue Lack. He leaves the Sifa guy because he doesn't believe they have success. He thinks the Cardassians are going to descend on them at any moment. And he takes off for this area of land that his family lives on, hoping that Terrell will follow him. But, uh, she doesn't, she goes on the, on this mission And while he's there, these two Cardassian women visit the vineyards there. And one of them is Natima Lang, who, as I mentioned, we see in the episode profit and loss. She has a whole romance with Quark at some point that we haven't seen yet, but is I'm thinking still to come. And uh, her friend who is Damar's betrothed and Damar, of course, from the deep space nine series as well. We see him as a young officer here and they cross paths with the Sifa guy and Sifa panics and takes them hostage. And Damar's betrothed gets injured and Natima Lang works with the Bajoran to try and dig them out of these caverns that they've become trapped in and all of this. So that that was an interesting story. And, and I have always really liked the character of Natima Lang. And I like that she gets such a big role in this as well, because Kind of like Estrella's story, but through a different method, Natima Lang is starting to get a little disillusioned with how Cardassian society is and how Cardassia is treating Bajor. And we see kind of the beginnings of that evolution in this part of the story here.
2: And she's working with Sifa to get out of this trapped corridor, this tunnel that they're in. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Damar's girlfriend, Vija Katan is trapped and she's almost unconscious. She's been hurt, you know, and they're trying to save her life and, and they're running out of light and they're digging. And we see, you know, Sifa and Natima fighting, you know, arguing with each other. We need to do this. No, we need to do that. We need, to, you know, whatever. And, and so they have to work together. But I have to say. That out of everything in this novel, this was the storyline that had a scene that really made me jump in my seat. uh, Oh, really? Being surprised because when the Cardassians come to rescue them and here's Sifa who's been trying to help save his life and the two Cardassians. And the first thing the Cardassians do is shoot him Mm
1: -hmm. and he's dead. Like just and, immediately. and that's Damar. Damar that yeah. pulls the trigger there.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, they didn't even come and go, like, is everybody okay? Who are you? Or, you know, I mean, here he is helping to try to save Damar's girlfriend. It's just like, oh, look, a bajorn. I was like, whoa. Like, there was not even exchange of words, you know? It was just like, just knock him off. And, he, mm-hmm. and the thing is, Sifa knew. He was he was afraid. He was telling them while they were trapped in there, you know, if we do communications and they come down, they're going to kill me. You know, my like, I don't want to communicate. I want to just try to get out of here on our own. So that actually made
1: uh, me kind of jump in my seat when I read that. I was like,
2: whoa, did that just happen?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because rereading this novel, there's not like I remember bits and pieces, and I. I don't really remember everything and very clearly. And you know, when I'm reading something like, Oh yeah, I kind of vaguely remember that, that whole time that they're in that cave and they're arguing, I remember exactly what happens at the end of that scene. And I knew that as soon as Damar and that other soldier get there, he just gets shot. And, uh, That's tough, like reading that and knowing that that's coming because, oh, that's like obviously the first time I read it, that must have just stuck so hard in my mind, that image of that happening that like I just remember that so clearly.
2: Yeah, I think years from now, if I ever reread this novel, I think the same thing's going to happen. I'll remember when I get to that scene. I know where this is going. I'll remember it. But I don't remember that after that if the other two Cardassians that were trapped with him ever said anything to Mar about why did you shoot? I don't think they ever even argued like, you know, why would you do that? He even, he was trying to save her life. Why did you shoot him? Like, they just like, okay, well he's dead. Oh, well, (laughs) like
1: they didn't care. Absolutely. We do see the seeds of something planted in Natima Lang's mind though, because some of the arguments that Sifa makes about Cardassian orphans versus Bajoran orphans and that sort of thing. And and in this whole incident, Vija, or Vaja, or however you say her name, I'm not sure, it's revealed that due to her injuries, she won't be able to bear children, which means that her engagement to Damar is now over. Because yeah. a Cardassian woman that can't bear children is not worth having as a wife, because that is the the whole reason, you know, and even Cardassian orphans, if they don't have living parents, they're discarded basically because family is everything on, on Cardassia. And Natima is starting to question this. She says like, why can't Damar and Vija still make a go of it and look after some of these kids? Like she wants nothing more than to be a mother and she can be, and she starts to kind of say this to Damar, and Damar's face is like, "What?" And she's like, "Oh, oh uh, never mind. Forget I said yeah. anything. I gotta go." Bye. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's just such a an alien concept to the Cardassians. It was like he was so offended. Like, how dare you suggest such a ugly
2: thing, like adoption of a kid, like, like it,
1: almost to the point where it's perverse. Yeah. Like he's so appalled by it. Yeah, and she quickly knows,
2: like, oh yeah, I shouldn't have said anything. Forget what I just said, you know. Like, I'm so sorry. Yeah. But at the same time, he's there as his, yeah, fiance or is you know recovering, and he needs to be there with her, and he wants to be there when she wakes up, and all these things. And there's Ducat, like, you know, why would he even bother? Like, he can't. She can't even bear children anymore. Like, you, he's wasted his time visiting his girlfriend when he should be here on the station working with me on this whatever situation that's going on, you know? I mean, he's just just a cold-hearted
1: Cardassian. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was one thing I, I found interesting was uh, Damar and Dukat's relationship. And as, as I'm talking about this, I'm looking at my wall, and I see a signed photo of Damar signed by Casey Biggs and just that – Ah, what a great character. Anyway, this hero worship that Damar has for Ducat, And like, it's so easy to remember Damar as he is at the end of the series where he's telling Cardassians to rise up against the Dominion and stuff. And I I always forget the like toady Damar period where like if we see during the season six period where the Cardassians and the Dominion have retaken Deep Space Nine this is the Damar from that time still where he's just like a bootlicker to Dukat for most of the time. Right? Like when Wayoon is insulting Dukat and Weyoun walks out and Damar's like, you shouldn't have to put up with that. He doesn't understand how great you are or something like that. Like that's the Damar we get in this story. And that was fun to kind of see that and also see that Dukat just does not care. Like, you know he he's taken Damar under his wing, but he has no compassion for him or his situation or anything. He just sees how Damar is useful to him, basically. Yeah.
2: No, it's I was getting those vibes of the early DS9 Damar in this for sure. You know, and Ducat's always Ducat.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of Ducat, we get a, a significant chunk of the novel kind of talking about Dukat on the station and with Maru, Kira Narisa's mother. Uh, and we've mentioned, of course, we see Kira as a young kid. And she has this uh, encounter with a Cardassian soldier. And, you know, he's kind of bullying these kids and asks for their names. And she says, I'm Kira Nerissa and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, Kira oh, crap, we're supposed to leave the Kira family alone. Ah, uh, okay, go on, just get out of here. And and we find out that, yeah, Kira has basically been protected throughout her life because of Dukat's relationship with Maru, which uh, there's, a, there's a portion towards the end of the novel that uh, I think gets continued in book three. The part that I was remembering as we were getting close to it, I'm like, wait, I think that actually happens in book three, but we see the beginnings of it here. Where Kira is basically protected throughout her whole life, even as a member of the resistance because of Dukat's relationship with her mother.
2: Yeah, Dukat's a very interesting character because not just the protection of Kira, but how he wants to be loved by Bajorans, you know? And again, I mean these are things we've learned in the series too of his back history with them. And like, you know, I was good to the Bajorans. Why would they hate me? What you know and even <laughs> why gets... is there no statue of me on Bajor? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, O'Brien gets a statue. Why not me? But you know, it's like he just even like people that work with him, other Cardassians, just roll their like roll their eyes at him, like, gee, like what what are you trying to do? Why do you need the to love them? Why do you need to treat them so well? And of course he's not really treating them well. I guess you could say he's treating them better than some other Cardassians would, but here again, like he's protecting the Kira family because you know, this woman is his mate on the station, even though he's married and his wife's not around, but this is his plaything. but he has feelings for her. He does love her in his own way. And, I guess she kind of has a bit of feelings for him too in a weird kind of way. And I don't know. It's just the whole thing is so weird that I just have to wonder that when this TV series started, was this something they came up in the backstory that they were going to use later? Or I have to assume that it was something developed later, but who would have ever thought that you would take the Kieran Reese character and establish that her mother was a lover of ducats. I mean, that's just so messed up.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it it's so fitting for his character though, that like he can do all this on the one hand and be so magnanimous. And he promised Maru that he would look after the family. So he will continue to do so forever. And at the same time, he's like, well, you know, these Bajorans, uh, ship them off to Dr. Krell and he can do his experiments on them in the same breath is like saying like, Oh, I allow the Bajoran so much freedom and blah, blah, blah. It's like, he's so self deluded and oh. he does just enough to make himself feel good about what he's doing. And at the same time is doing all these horrible things that he's just able to kind of compartmentalize it and like not realize how horrible that is. And it's, it's disgusting. Oh, he's so disgusting. <laughs> And then you have Basso who's collaborating
2: and serving Dukat, who's a Bajoran and he's I mean he's like almost hundred percent Cardassian the way he acts in a way you know it's like he's supporting everything Dukat wants to do, but he also is playing Dukat you know to kind of get his way with things and he's helping to oversee the Kira family and stuff. And that
1: guy actually made me a little more disgusted than Dukat. Yeah, you can see why the resistance such has such a huge problem with collaborators, right? Like the collaborators are almost worse than the Cardassians, it yeah. seems. Like they betrayed their own people. And Basso, another one, just a minor character we see in the episode, Wrong's Darker Than Death or Night. And we see a lot more of him in this novel and gets fleshed out quite a bit, for sure. Yeah, I didn't like him. <laughs> no, <laughs> he's pretty terrible, for sure. Yeah, so we get Kira and her time with the Resistance a little bit, uh, and we'll come back to that right at the end, because that's kind of the last major thing in the novel. But I also want to talk a little bit about Rolaren, and I thought her journey in this novel was really fascinating because uh, she's a young Bajoran orphan who basically hooks up with the resistance at a really young age and starts doing things with the resistance uh, for her young age that she probably shouldn't be doing. You know, she's robbed of her childhood basically. And I feel like she's representative of the generation of Bajorans coming up during this time. The, the loss of their culture, like she doesn't believe in the religion at all. The occupation has basically robbed that entire generation of their childhood and their innocence and all the anger and hatred she has towards the Cardassians is kind of a microcosm of what the what Bajor as a whole feels towards the Cardassians. I really enjoyed seeing her in this novel and the journey she's on. And you know, from these really incredibly violent things that she has to do, juxtaposed with like, hey, that boy is kind of cute, and I have these weird feelings things that a kid that age should be feeling and experiencing alongside all this horrible stuff she has to go through. It was really in a lot of ways, heartbreaking and sad, but you know, just, we know where the character is going to end up for better or for worse. And to see this, this formative period was uh, brutal. It really helps to define who
2: the character is that we see later. It starts to make even more sense And the fact that she doesn't really have her family anymore and she has like this uncle or whatever that's overseeing her. And she almost feels used by the resistance, like because she's this great hacker. She can hack into security Mm. systems and stuff. And it's like, okay, do they keep me around because they like me or do they keep me around because they need me? And so I think all of a sudden she's just of this opinion of I'm on my own. I don't feel like anybody really loves me necessarily i'm not sure i can't trust them i can't trust the prophets like everything's just kind of going to hell and i just have to take care of myself and do my own thing because i'm really on my own and so that's why when we see her later in tng she's more of a bit of a rebellion of like you know and, and protective she's got the wall up in front of her of like you know hey I got this, trust me, because I can only trust in myself, I can't trust in others. And of course, it takes her some time to start trusting in Picard and others.
1: But I, I liked how they played this out. Mm-hmm, me too. And there's a couple things I enjoyed. it. Like, uh, for example, we've seen Roe at this age because of the episode where they all uh, got turned into kids. So, you know, we know what Ro kind of looks like. So I was kind of casting that young actor in my head playing Ro. At this time. And also we kind of see a little bit of an explanation as to how she probably got into Starfleet Academy and graduated because she is so adept at, you know, these computer systems and stuff. She's all obviously very intelligent, very quick to learn things. You can see how a mind like that would succeed at the Academy. So it's like, oh, okay. Starfleet. Yeah. That kind of makes sense.
2: Yeah. Because she also doesn't trust her resistance cell because they put her on a mission To plant a bomb on a Ferengi ship to help even blow up Tarak Noor, and there's Bajorans on the station. She comes to realize that they're just like, well you know, the sacrifices those lives will make will save, you know, millions, of, but we'll get to caught. Like, that's the thing. We'll get to caught. Yeah. Bajorans will die, but we'll get to caught. Then she starts to realize this is not the right way to do this. I mean, we're sacrificing other people's lives, innocent lives of Bajorans. There's got to be another way. Unlike what happens with the Kira storyline where they do whatever they can to save lives. She's in a resistance cell that says, oh no, we can sacrifice lives. So it kind of makes sense for her to say, I want to go to maybe find something in Starfleet because they're going to find a more logical way to help save lives. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, for sure. To be fair, it's not the resistance cell that does that though, because that that's the, basically this boy she likes. That was his whole idea. True. Yeah. And, and the resistance cell seems kind of against doing that kind of thing, but but she's still, yeah, it, it definitely alienates her from her fellow Bajorans to see that, like, they're capable of doing that kind of thing and stuff. So Yeah,
2: that guy Biss, and I think he had a couple of friends that were, like, supporting him in that, yeah.
1: Yeah, back on, on Valo too, yeah. So I can see how she would be disillusioned by, by a lot of those opinions and, and those actions for sure. So I, I can't remember if we pick up her story in book three or not, or if it's just like she's clearly off to join Starfleet or or find something at this point. I can't remember if we pick up her story again. Oh, I hope uh, so though. I want I want her story. <laughs> yeah. I you know, I would love just a ro Laren at the Academy novel or something like that. I'd love to see that. I think that'd be really interesting.
2: I know. I was just thinking if it's not in this next story, then I hope there's a book out there that that is addressed like her time joining Starfleet. And there may be one. I've just never read it.
1: Yeah, me neither. That'd be pretty cool. Well, there's a couple other things that I want to touch on. The first is Odo and we see very early in the book, him being discovered and then It isn't until quite late in the book that the Cardassians are like, oh, right, we have this sample. Uh, Give it to Dr. Mora. Have him try and figure it out. And Dr. Mora, who we see in the Deep Space Nine series, studies Odo and eventually realizes he's sentient. And we get some interesting things about him working with the Cardassians. And uh, his lab partner basically ends up being an unwitting collaborator, uh, helping run the Galatep labor camp and all this stuff. And Odo's very kind of briefly involved in that. And we see that Odo gets a glimpse of Kira much earlier than we thought too. That was kind of fascinating.
2: Yeah, that was kind of cute. I mean, it was real brief, but yeah, I thought that was, that was pretty clever. This is the storyline that I really wanted to see fleshed out more because Mm. it's not so much about Odo. It's more about Dr. Mora. But I wanted to know more about Odo. It's like, okay, well, Odo is kind of being born and tested through this and discovering himself. And we're not really seeing so much of that storyline of him. But now that I'm talking about that, I guess that's really addressed in Deep Space Nine in that episode with Mora. Like maybe that story doesn't need to be told in this book, but... I will say that, like you said, when they discovered Odo early, I was like, Oh, that's Odo that they just discovered. And then I kept waiting for something to happen. I was like, are they going to even address Odo or is that it? (laughs) You know? And then they finally got to this point with, uh, the lab and, and him being in the lab and poked at and stuff. But again, that's one of those stories that I think would be interesting in its own book is just Odo in the lab with Mora and learning who he is or, He doesn't really know he is, but just kind of discovering, you know, what he is or what he's doing and what's his place and who are these people. And I I just think that would be an interesting story.
1: Yeah. Well, I will say look out for book three. There's there's more to come for Odo. Okay. good. Which I, I, I guess you could probably tell from the cover of book three. But yeah, still. That's true. He is on the cover, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, finally, the last kind of major thing in the novel, before the epilogue anyway, is the Galatep labor camp run by Gul'dar Heel, And we see that being a big focus in the Deep Space Nine episode duet. And we know that the Shakar Resistance cell was involved in liberating it. And we see all of that happen in this novel here. It's kind of the the final big set piece of the novel. I really enjoyed this part, kind of seeing it play out here. It sounds like like it was just a hellhole and and you know the treatment of the Bajoran laborers was so horrible. And we hear that described in the Deep Space Nine episode, but to really just kind of see it play out in this novel, I thought the authors did a really excellent job of bringing that to life and showing Kira and the Shakar resistance cell and their role in, in liberating that camp.
2: Yeah, and the terror in the Bajorans, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. Kira's not expecting them to be so terrified, but she's not aware of the fire pit and all whatever's going on in this place. And and they're all freaking out and they're afraid they're going to fall down in and all this and trying to keep people calm and so he can beam them out. And just seeing her take that leadership role all of a sudden of leading people and standing up and say, you know, I need everybody... That's going this way to come this way, and you know trust me well, I'm going to take care of you. we're going to get you out of here, and you know she's just you know a young woman, she's a teenager at this time, but this is definitely where we start to see the Kira Narice that becomes a leader,
1: yeah, and one of the final things we see in the novel is Basso running to Dakatte with a image of Kira doing this and saying, "Look, look what she's done, look what she's done and that's kind of where this is left. There's a there's a thing that ties into something in season one of Deep Space Nine that I kept expecting right in this bit at the end of the novel, but now I'm like, okay, I guess that must be in the next novel that they make that explicitly clear. But there's just this really cool thing that they tie into that shows that Ducat is like in a weird way, looking out for Kira during this time. And it's, it's weird and creepy. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, no, we'll, we'll talk about it uh, in a couple weeks, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, that whole bit at the end I thought was interesting. And then of course we get that epilogue that shows that things are going to tie in and continue in book three. So all of that said, after an hour and 10 minutes of talking about this novel, Bruce, what are your final thoughts and anything that we missed talking about this novel? I think I realize as we're talking through this that I
2: like this novel a little more than I thought. Because I think because we're learning more about Rose's backstory and a little bit of Odo's and Kira's and Ducat's and Damar's and on and on and on, I just... I, I think I like the different story elements that played back and forth. And it just seemed like, like I said, a history book of these are the events that took place this year. And then we fast forward another year or two or whatever. And these are the events that played out this year that, you know, and we just kind of see that build up. So I, I did enjoy getting to know these more familiar characters in the setting because it was something I always thought about when I watched deep space nine. And yeah, I've often thought about the occupation and how that started too. But like we talked earlier, book one has a different feel than book two. But I would say in a lot of ways, I probably had a little more fun with book two than I did with book one. Book one's very serious and very dark in a way. And this has dark moments too. But there's some lighter moments in here for me as well. So I would say that I'm going to give this book four and a half out of five Dejaras that Mm. uh, we shouldn't have to have anymore.
1: Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said. I I really enjoy this novel. The the change in the storytelling I noticed quite a bit from book 1 to book 2. But again, I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just a different way of telling the story. And I love the just the little touchstones that James Swallow left for them to kind of pick up and and run with. I love Deep Space 9 so much. So seeing the characters that we know and love and some that we hate from deep space nine, love to hate, maybe, I don't know, uh, get their backstories in this and what they're doing at this time and how they're living. Even Win Adami, the, she's a, not even a Vedic yet at this point, but just to see her personality come through a little bit where she's like, uh, they're like, oh, win! you always come by and and with great religious counsel and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, and yet I'm still a lowly Ranjan. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I love it. The, these authors have the characters' voices down so well. And then, you know, building on these characters that we've just seen a little tiny bit of or creating these brand new characters that feel fully fleshed out. It really makes this period of history come alive. And There's some dark parts. It's dark, like you said. It kind of, we know not everything's going to end well in this novel because we're only partway through the occupation and we know it's going to get worse before it gets better. But we know that eventually dawn is coming, right? We've got Dawn of the Eagles, the next novel, and we know the occupation is going to end eventually. So I, I'm really eager to finish this story up. It's been so long. I, I don't remember exactly how it all goes, but I, I've been, really enjoyed this reread. And so this time around, I think I'm going to give this novel, I'm going to say four out of five Balon powered fighters that are used as decoys. Hmm, there you go. Okay, cool. So uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts, dear listeners, about this novel. So reach out to us, PositivelyTrek at gmail.com or Twitter at PositivelyTrek. We also have the PositivelyTrek discussion group on Facebook and our Goodreads group where we list all the novels that we're going to be talking about. And we have discussions happening about all the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. And Bruce, if people want to talk to you about their thoughts on this novel or anything else, where can they contact you? Well, you can come to my house. I live at. No, wait, no,
2: that's not a good idea. You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral underscore the underline Rex. And of course, you can find me in our
1: Facebook discussion group. Excellent. And you can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats, that's Kertrats. That's K E R T R A T S. And youtube.com slash Kertrats Productions. And also make sure to check out patreon.com slash Positively Trek if you're interested in helping out the show. We really appreciate it. But we really mostly appreciate you listening. So thank you so much for listening.
2: And then also, since you like books, and if you're going to be at Star Trek Mission Chicago, check us out on Friday. I'm going to be there moderating a panel about Star Trek books and comics. So check out
1: the website and app for more details. Oh man. That's so awesome. I can't wait uh, to see you there. I, I will not be there. Unfortunately, I really wish I could be there. No, but...
2: you're there in spirit. Ah, oh, I want to
1: be there in person. <laughs> I'll mention your name to everybody. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for listening and we will see you in the next episode until then as always stay positive
0: save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app